part of me, you'll have to forgive me, is smiling a little bit more than I would usually smile at a time like this. That's the South African part of me, but <laughs> I... Uh, bad luck, try again. <laughs> you know. I said right at the beginning, um, it had to be a South African win. We win it every 12 years. And so it has proven. Well, it's time for another theology lecture. Oh, joy. And I, uh, I enjoy these little breakouts where we can just from, from time to time look at what we as a church say we believe. It's important we know what we're talking about when we say this is what we believe about the Bible. This is what we believe about the person and work of God himself. This is what we believe about salvation. And last week we looked at what we believe about the person of Christ. And we're going to look at that again today. We looked, first of all, we looked at the last Sunday, we looked at the fact that Christ is fully human, was and is fully human. Born of a Virgin Mary, we looked at that and why that is so important was fully human in mind, in body, in soul. And why it's so important that he was fully human. So if you look at our statement of faith, you can see the things in the second part of that statement he could not have done in any real sense unless he were fully human. Unless he were fully human, we wouldn't have believed what he taught us. If unless he were fully human, his death on the part of sinners would have had no meaning whatsoever. And so on. Now we need to, today to look primarily at do we believe, in fact, that Jesus Christ is fully God? There are those, of course, who in the past have said, well, he never even existed. There are very few today who, who doubt the existence of Jesus Christ. Very few indeed. And they're normally in an institution somewhere. In fact, there are very few today, even amongst serious scholars, atheistic scholars, who have much doubt at all that what he says in the Gospels is actually what he actually said. Most people believe that there was a man called Jesus, a great man, a great healer, and he said all of these things. They believe that. There's very few people who don't believe that. The question is, what do we do with what he said? What do we believe about what he said? Is he fully God? When he walked on this planet... Was he fully God at the same time as being fully man? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is to look at the claims that Jesus made. And a good place to start would be right at the end of his life, in fact. It's in the trial in the high priest's uh, uh, precinct. Everything about this trial is absolutely illegal. There's nothing that is right about it. It shouldn't be held at night. There should be witnesses for the defense, but there's none of that. And in Mark chapter 14, you read these words. Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. That means that hearing this, he was so upset, so, so angry, he just ripped his own clothing. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. Have you heard this blasphemy? What do you think? And they all condemned him worthy of death. 
Judge Arthur Gaynor, the accomplished juror of the New York bench, in his address on the trial of Jesus to a group of students, maintains that this, this act of blasphemy was absolutely critical in understanding that Jesus is claiming to be God. He says it is plain from each of the gospel narratives that the alleged crime for which Jesus was tried and convicted was blasphemy. He was hung on the cross because he claimed to be God. Not for any other reason. Jesus had been clearly claiming supernatural powers. And in a human being, that was blasphemy. And the people who judged Jesus knew without any doubt that he was claiming to be God. And that's why they crucified him. And yet there are still some today who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But he did. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I counted them once and I can't remember what the number was. But it's well into the, into the dozens. He claimed, in fact, to be Yahweh, Jehovah. That word Yahweh, Jehovah, is, a, is actually just four letters, Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew. We call it Yahweh, we used to call it Jehovah. And in your Bible, you know you see it, because whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. If it's capital L with a small O, R, and D, that's another word altogether. So whenever you see the whole word capitalized, that's Yahweh, Jehovah. Now, where does that name come from? It comes from when God is addressing Moses, and he says to Moses, in identifying himself, he says, Moses, I am who I am. That's it. I am who I am. He says to Isaiah, this is what the Lord says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no other God. He says again to Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. My name and here we have Jesus now, John chapter 8 and verse 58, and there's a whole dispute in this chapter about who is he, who isn't he, and Jesus says this, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. And what, was, what happened the moment he said that? Before Abraham was, I am, what is the reaction? They picked up stones and threw stones at him. Why? Because they knew he was claiming to be Jehovah God. They knew he was claiming to be Yahweh himself. His claim to be sinless is a claim to being God. Right at the beginning of the same John chapter 8, we see Jesus saying to this very hostile crowd, he says, which of you convicts me of any sin? And the response is silence. See what apologist C.E. Jefferson has to say. The best reason we have for believing in the sinlessness and therefore the deity, the godness of Jesus is the fact that he allowed his dearest friends to think that he was sinless. There is in all of his talk no trace or regret or hint of compunction or suggestion of sorrow or slightest vestige of remorse. He taught other men to think of themselves as sinners. He asserted plainly that human heart is full of evil. He always tells his disciples to pray for forgiveness, but he never speaks or acts as though he himself has the faintest consciousness of ever having done anything other than that which is pleasing to God. He claims sinlessness. When you claim sinlessness, you're claiming deity. 
And there are many, many other claims. My father and I are one. He says in John chapter 3, and what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him. In John chapter 14, the verse we always know, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says to the disciples in that upper room, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's a claim to deity. Now, you say, ah, but there, there are some contradictions to that. And you may point to John chapter, um, John chapter 12, where Jesus says these words. He says, my father is greater than I. He said, there you go. Jesus is a little bit less than God. He says, the Father is greater than he is. Well, the answer is, of course, that for a period of time, Jesus was subordinate to the Father. One of the ways you can look at it is this way. There were times then when uh, Jesus is equal with the Father. Jesus is always equal with the Father in his divine nature, in his essence, in his being, in the different attributes, omnipresent, omnipresent. Uh, omnipowerful, omnipotent, omnipotent. In his deity, he is equal to the Father. But for a period of time, and indeed, indeed even now, there are ways in which Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is subordinate to the Father. He is both equal and subordinate. He is subordinate in his humanity. He is subordinate in his position. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's subordinate in the job that he has to do. He is sent by the Father to buy salvation. Or you can see it this way, if you like. When Jesus, we see Jesus as God, and he is the creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was doing the creating right back then. Jesus, is, as God, is beyond time. Jesus, as God, is infinite. Jesus, as God, has no limit to his knowledge. But Jesus, as a man, was created in the birth, in the womb of, of Mary. Jesus as a man was in time. Jesus as a man was finite for those 30-some years. Jesus as a man limited himself in terms of his knowledge. He even said, remember we talked about it last week, he didn't know when the return was Christ would be. Only the Father knew that. So you look at all of these claims that Jesus makes about himself claims to be God, he acts like God, he does God-like things. And Josh McDowell goes on to say, well, if he wasn't God, he certainly deserved an Oscar. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic, or he was the Lord of all. So you look at all of these claims, and you have a number of alternatives. Jesus either knew that his claims were false or his claims were true. You have a choice when you look at the person of Jesus. If his claims were false, there are two alternatives. He knew his claims were false, and if he knew his claims were false, then he deliberately misled people. And therefore, he was a liar and a hypocrite. And more than that, he was a fool because he died for it. Or... His claims were false, but he didn't know they were false. He was deluded. This is the theme of that Lloyd Webber musical, Jesus Christ Superstar. This deluded man who was taken up in all of this stuff. And the only sane person at the end of the play is Judas Iscariot. 
But if his claims are not false, if he's neither a liar nor a lunatic, what are you left with? The fact that his claims might be true. And if his claims are true, then he is the Lord. And if he is the Lord, there's one last alternative. We either accept him or we reject him. But of course, it was not just Jesus who made claims about himself. Many others did, again and again and again. His own parents were told that, as had been prophesied, their son's name would include the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. How great a claim is there to deity than that? As I've just said, in John, the, the, the disciple who was probably closest to Jesus of all in terms of their, their relationship, John is the one who starts his gospel by saying that in the beginning was the Word. Now that Word is, is Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was God. Peter, the, the disciple, is approached by Jesus and, 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 and people have been making all sorts of claims. And Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And again and again in Peter's epistles, First and Second Peter, again and again, Christ is pointed out to be the Almighty God. Paul, who is educated by Christ in the deserts of Arabia for three or four years, writes in Colossians chapter 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of God lives in this person in bodily form. The writer to the Hebrews puts it so beautifully. The Son, this is the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the scriptures are absolutely clear. Jesus is indeed fully God, just as we have seen that he is fully human. And we might have thought that that is where the argument would end, but it isn't. And it has been debated theologically, especially since the beginning of the 19th century, and is still being dealt with today in liberal mainline churches and in some sects and in more recent times in some of the charismatic churches. And it's all because of a little passage of scripture. This is that passage. Passages from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and pleading for more humility. And he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In the old translation it said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, or the old version said, he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. There you go, say the German theologians of the 1800s and the English theologians of 1890 onwards. Jesus emptied himself of his godness. When he was here on earth, he wasn't fully God. He emptied himself of his divinity. He emptied himself of his omniscience. 
He emptied himself of his power. He emptied himself of his omnipresence while he was in a human body. It was viewed as a a, a voluntary act of self-limitation. The problem is, does Philippians chapter 2 really teach this? And does the rest of the New Testament back it up? The answer is no and no. No recognized teacher, certainly in the first 1800 years of the church, ever taught that Christ emptied himself of his godness when he was on earth. And the text doesn't say that. What does the text say? The text describes what Jesus did in this so-called emptying. He did not, while Jesus was on earth, and this is so, so important, Jesus did not, while he was on earth, empty himself of his godness. He didn't empty himself of his divine qualities. But he took the form of a servant. And he came to live on earth, and being found in appearance as a man, the text says, he humbled himself. He didn't utilize all of the abilities that he had because he was humbling himself, but he never emptied himself of those abilities. He humbles himself and he takes on this lowly status. For Jesus, it is a change of role. It's a change of of status. It's not a change of attributes or nature. And what is Paul trying to show in this passage? Paul is just trying to show that You and I as his readers and the Philippian church, we should do nothing, as he says earlier, from selfishness or conceit. But in humility, we should count others greater than ourselves, just as Christ counted God greater than himself. He's preaching humility. He's preaching the need for every believer to put others before themselves. So look at it once more who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used as an advantage. What did he do? He humbled himself. He made himself as of nothing by taking the nature of a servant. So the best understanding of this passage is that it talks about a Jesus giving up status, giving up the privileges that was his in heaven so that he could humble himself and set us an example of humility. Nowhere in the rest of the New Testament, and indeed in the prophecy of the Old Testament, is there ever mention that Jesus gives up his deity. The title kenosis theory simply comes from the Greek word kenosis, which means to empty. People are still believing this theory today, and this is where it's so sad and so tragic. I'll show you that there are those who believe, believe this, and I think I know why. I think there's a growing discontent amongst many modern thinkers, particularly in the so-called scientific age, who feel that if Jesus really did exist, and he did, surely he was nothing much more than a really good man. Surely he was a man who just was like we are, and had, there was nothing more to him. There was no divinity. And you see, the reason I think they do that, and we see this in pulpits around our country, it's easier to preach And it's a lot easier to attract people into your church when you preach that Jesus wasn't fully God. The most recent example of this, and I did some quite extensive research in this over many, many days, is in the Bethel Word of Faith movement. Pastor, or is now called Apostle, and I always always get scared when people start calling themselves Apostles. 
Bill Johnson of Redding, California. This is what he says, and you can read this on his website of the Bethel Church in California. Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man, as a man in a real relationship with God, but he was not God. If he had performed the miracles as God, then you and I would not be able to perform miracles. You see where he's going? He goes on to say that every believer has been granted the ability, every believer has been granted the ability to heal and to perform other miracles because, and these are his words, they're not my words, we, are, we have become little gods. It's being taught that Jesus did indeed become a man by giving up his godness. And even more shocking, that on the cross he died spiritually, He then took on Satan's nature upon himself, descended into hell, and in hell he was born again. I don't know where they get this. It's not from the Bible. And he rose from the dead once more, being like God. And then Christ sent the Holy Spirit to replicate the incarnation. Those are the words. To replicate the incarnation in you and in me. So that we become like Adam Little gods. And so the progression is, as little gods, we will have the ability then to manipulate this so-called faith force and become prosperous in all the areas of our life. Illness, sin, poverty, failure will always then be a result of a lack of faith. Remedied by confession and claiming God's promise to say it, claim it, and make it ours. Simply put, this system exalts humans to God's status and God to human status. And it's very enticing. You see, I was thinking about this just this morning. As a preacher of the gospel... Myself, your pastor, any of us who stand in this pulpit and in any situation in front of whatever group and we preach the gospel, we are entitled on the grounds of scripture to make you certain promises. On the grounds of scripture this morning, I can make you some very, very firm promises. I can promise you grace. I can promise you pardon. I can promise you peace. I can promise you joy. But I can't promise you health. And I can't promise you financial well-being for the rest of your life. In doing so, I'm stepping way outside of the pages of Scripture. When we consider what church is best, what church is closest to the biblical model in theory and in practice, one can do worse than to ask, what do you think? about the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. What do you think about the kenosis theory? You see, the sure way to grow your congregation is to preach that Jesus was mostly human, just as we are. And that because we are so similar, we are little gods, and we can do everything he can do. 
So we can live lives that are miracle after miracle after miracle. My life isn't like that. Is yours? Wish it was. Isn't. But we can live lives of miracle after miracle. No more illness, no more financial problems, no more failed businesses, no more defeat, no more sadness, no more loss. Who wouldn't join a church where that was preached? Jesus is fully human and fully God. And he brings to us so much because of that. He taught with authority. I picked a book off my bookshelf this morning. In fact, I was reading this last night. If you haven't read J.C. Ryle's book on um, holiness, you ought to. It's fairly recent, 1879, so it's not that old. Um, and he makes the point in a little, uh, it's a series of wonderful sermons, and he makes the point that when we talk about Jesus teaching us, we need to read his teachings more often. We spend a lot of time maybe in the, in the epistles and sometimes in the Old Testament, but do we, do we read the Gospels enough? Do we get to the Sermon on the Mount enough? Do we get to Jesus' teachings? And I'd just like to read one or two things he says here, if I may, very briefly. For, excuse the language, it is 1879. It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all of Scripture is profitable. Is it, not wise to ex- it is not wise to, ex- to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another. But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Why do I say this? I say it is because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and the principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It is well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They are all matters pertaining to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. Maybe in your Bible study year by year, put some time for a reading of a gospel. At least once a year, read one of the gospels. He not only taught with authority, but he died in the place of sinners. He obeyed the law fully, as we could never do. And then he went one step further, and he paid the penalty that is ours for our disobedience. And only he could do it. Because when sacrifices are made, the lamb that is sacrificed needs to be without blemish. And he was without blemish. And he was sent to Calvary for each of us. The sinless one dying for the sinner. And then he rose from the dead. I'd suggest to you that in all of history, and I I enjoy reading history, one of the most attestable facts of all of ancient history is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one thing that you can prove more surely than many other facts of history from 2,000 years ago. Josh McDowell puts it this way. He says, sometimes faith is the resting of the heart in the sufficiency of the evidence. Do you get that? Faith is the resting of the heart in the sufficiency of the evidence. There is sufficient evidence to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. More than sufficient evidence. 
more than sufficient evidence. But why is it so important? Well, it is one of the great proofs that fact that everything that Jesus said about himself is true. If he hadn't risen from the dead, we would no longer have to believe anything that he said. If his body is still in a grave somewhere, we have nothing left to believe. And that's the great difference between our faith and any other faith. You can, you can visit the tomb of the great prophet Muhammad. And if you were allowed in, what would you find? A body. You can visit the tomb of the great Gautama Buddha. If you were allowed in, what would you find? A body. If you were to visit the tomb of Confucius, the great scholar of the East, and you were allowed in, what would you find? A body. Visit today the tomb where Jesus was buried, what do you find? Nothing. Nothing. His resurrection is also important because he is the pattern for us. We will rise from the dead, as he did, in a new resurrection body, free from death and disease and degradation. And he ascended into heaven to take the place of honor at the Father's right hand and to be our mediator. He intercedes for his people. He's our mediator. He's our high priest who sympathizes with our sufferings. He's there to hear our prayers. Sometimes when you pray, pray within your mind's eye the human form of Jesus in front of you. And pray to him like that because he is still in human form. He's got a new body, free from sin and degradation and illness, but he is still in human form and you can pray to him in human form and because he's in human form, he understands. He sympathizes. That's why it's he that mediates. Pray in his name. And we always say, in Jesus' name. And that's why we pray in his name. Because although the words flow so easily off the tongue, we need to understand what's happening. We pray in Jesus' name because he's the one who understands and he hears and he attends to our prayers. He's not only a great high priest, but he's a caring high priest. He's not only a powerful saviour, but he's a loving and caring saviour. He's not only mighty to save, but he is able to feel. And so he does.